0: Here's your host, Dr. Melissa Saydorf.
1: Well, we are just coming off the National Rural Education Association's annual conference, the ENFAIR conference, that was just held in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I got to reconnect with Dr. Sarah Hartman, who is an amazing, amazing person. And uh, then I got to meet a new friend, uh, Dr. Bob Klein. And we have, Ty and I have the privilege of spending some time with them uh, for this episode. And I am so excited about what we're going to be talking about. So uh, Ty, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and then we'll have our guest of the hour introduce themselves.
2: Hi, right, so Ty White here, high school teacher from Wilcox, Arizona. I feel very fortunate to be in this room. I'm sure most of everyone knowing at this point is aware I was the 2022 National Rural Teacher of the Year from the NREA. And I learned that I came with some perks, one of which was I received a book in the mail, which is the best gift from anyone. But this book turned out to be really exciting, actually. The middle of somewhere was a collection of research profiles on developing rural education partnerships. And by the time I got to start talking to the editors of this, Dr. Hartman and Dr. Klein, it's like we knew this had to be one of our shows. So I'm really excited to have this here. This is one of my favorite perks from the year.
1: So let's start with you, Sarah, if you would introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background, and then Bob will have you take it away from there.
3: First of all, thank you so much for the invitation to be here with you tonight on the podcast. Um, I'm a big admirer of the podcast, so thank you very much. Um, I am currently, I'll start with my current position and then maybe I'll give you just a little bit of background about who I am um, and what led me to this position. Currently, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Ohio University. Ohio University is located in Southeastern Ohio in the rural part of the state one of the rural parts of the state. Um, I work specifically with our early and elementary education program, where we prepare teachers to work with children from birth to fifth grade, but we specifically license for preschool to fifth grade. And I also work with many of our doctoral students here in our department. Prior to that, I had the opportunity to to do some other exciting things. I started off as a classroom teacher, and I had the opportunity to work with fifth graders, sixth graders, eighth graders. Um, One of my greatest joys will always have been being a classroom teacher. I also am the co-founder of a hands-on discovery museum for youth of all ages here in Southeastern Ohio called the Ohio Valley Museum of Discovery where I've gotten to work with children and their families of all ages, as well as educators um, throughout the region. Both of those things have really informed my work as a teacher educator
1: today. Wow, that sounds amazing. I want to go to your museum. That's fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, it's been a
3: really a labor of love um, that began many years ago. When I started my work with the museum, somebody told us that the average time from the first kind of conversations to opening the doors of a museum like ours was 10 years. Uh And I thought there was no way that could possibly be true, but it actually is. Um, And so it's really been a labor of love. The museum is actually getting ready to open in a brand new space within the next few weeks.
1: So. Oh, fantastic. Well, we'll have to have you back to talk about all of the cool things that you're putting in front of kids to help them learn. Thank you. That would be wonderful. Well, so Bob, introduce us to you and your background and, and tell us what you're doing currently.
4: Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Ty. Uh, it's good to be back with Sarah again. I, I seem to never get enough of collaborating uh, with her on all of these projects. It's uh, it's it's big fun. Um so my, my name is Bob Klein. I come from Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, where I was born and raised. Uh, I currently am a chair and professor of the teaching, learning, and foundations department at Eastern Illinois University in Charleston, Illinois, uh, and spent many years, uh, almost 18 years at Ohio University with Sarah, um, done some uh, regional higher education leadership, uh, but, uh, gotten to work on some projects in rural education with, with Sarah and others, uh, as well as, uh, engaging in some, uh, math circle work, some collaborative, uh, partnerships with communities around, uh, schools and teachers and parents, guardians, uh, tribal elders, uh, especially in the Southwest. But, uh, Uh, that's also big fun and uh, thrilled to be here on the Rural Scoop to be with uh, other people who care about uh, rural spaces as much as Sarah and I do.
1: Fantastic. Well, we'll have to dive in a little bit deeper into the circle work that you're doing if we have time. I'm I'm, uh, excited to learn more about that as well. So we're going to start with focusing on the book that uh, Ty received in the mail as a gift when he, when he became the uh, Rural Teacher of the Year for NREA. And, and I guess my first question really is, what motivated you to focus your efforts on this book in, in terms of rural education and partnerships, um, and how does it fill a gap that we have in the current literature, because as you as you're very well aware, there's not a lot of rural out there in terms of literature and and research and things that are helpful for practitioners. So why this book? Outside of that,
3: <laughs> well, Bob and I are both very committed to increasing opportunities for youth in rural places, and we both believe that partnerships, collaborations are one of the most powerful ways that that happens. And so this project really stemmed from that idea and from that belief system. And, and I
4: would add that uh, that if one of the hallmarks of rural spaces is the importance of uh, community and relationships uh, and um, coming together to get things done. So frankly, if you wanted to look at a book on uh, educational partnerships. Generally, there's no better place to start than rural spaces. So that was, a, that was an easy win for us.
1: Do your personal backgrounds influence your perspective as it relates to those partnerships and their importance? Absolutely. So
3: um, as an educator, um, first as a classroom teacher, collaborations were always the way that you could accomplish the most for your students. But then as later as a doctoral student, Um, I actually did my doctoral research about what organic collaboration in a rural school looks like. So what does collaboration look like when people are um, not forced to engage in it, right? When they choose Mm -hmm. to work together and how are those collaborations developed and how are they sustained? And what I found in that research is that some really incredible things happen. And that propelled me in my future research work as a as a brand new assistant professor, and, and then has for, continued till today.
4: And for my part, I would say it's less my personal background than a personality trait. Uh, I am a notorious diehard place junkie. Uh, I love learning about new places and spaces. I love trying to understand them, their complexities. My background is uh, such that, that I'm, I'm very addicted to learning about places, understanding how they work. Uh, rural places in particular. And I was very fortunate when I got to Ohio University, uh, I had a a research program based on uh, access and equity issues in mathematics, particularly gender. Uh, And I ran into uh, uh, Craig and Amy Howley uh, and got to work side by side with them on several projects and uh, just fell in love with the work.
3: And I will add that Um, you mentioned your, your personality being drawn to collaborative partnership work also. And that is true because as I think it was maybe within this first six weeks of my position as an assistant professor at Ohio university that I heard from Bob and he said, we should go get coffee because I heard there's a new rural, uh, rural education researcher on the block around here. And, you know, I'd like to talk to you about, you know, possible collaborations and things you're interested in. And, you know, I think that's, that's, pretty powerful in terms of including people within the work that we all do.
2: You know, I really enjoyed reading this. I feel terrible because I want to be promoting it more on social media. But if we have an audience out there, I want them to know this was an impactful book. I want to know what your biggest takeaway findings were. What were the things that maybe surprised you or you really see that they could be more influential if they were implemented in in rural schools and rural communities? Let me just say there were so many things
4: in the book here that... Uh, um, as far as takeaways, you know, the, the overwhelming takeaway for me was uh, just uh, how much amazing work our colleagues are doing, um, how varied that work is. Um, so I'll, I'll have to do some thinking while Sarah talks about, uh, you know, specifics.
3: So there are just so many takeaways. One of the biggest takeaways is that this kind of work is happening in every rural context. We have chapters that rep- represent geographic locales from all over the United States. And they're all doing really incredible, impactful work to increase access and opportunity for their rural students and communities. Looking at examples of that was just really exciting and really a privilege to be able to do as an editor. Um, Some of the things I think are important are we saw some commonalities across these partnerships. We also saw things that were unique to each partnership which sort of underscores that idea that no rural place is exactly the same, um, which I think is an important takeaway. However, there are definitely pieces within these partnerships that could be implemented in other places.
1: Can you dive a little bit deeper, Sarah, into those commonalities? I'm, I'm interested to know what those surfaced as being. So a lot of our partnerships talk about some challenges
3: that exist in rural spaces and the ways that they leverage some of their assets um, within their communities and schools to address those challenges. Um, for example, funding is a was a common challenge that we hear about. So, the ways that the various entities came together to pool their resources in order to be able to accomplish the goals of the partnership was really exciting. Mm. So, for example, in chapter two, partnership school. In that chapter, they talk about the formation of a middle school that was for the entire county where Mississippi State University is located. And that chapter, or that school was to house every sixth and seventh grader in the entire county. And so hearing them talk about the way that that school was collaborative, collaboratively funded was really exciting. Um, so it was, funded both through the state, through the school district, and through the university um, to be able to come together to provide opportunities both for the students, but also for the teacher candidates who are able Mm -hmm. to work in that school. Um, Really an incredible example of addressing those funding challenges.
4: Another example I'd give is uh, the uh, presence of of champions. You know, part of uh, what happens with the emergence of these partnerships is the um, you know, two champions, three champions come together, find each other, and and see what they can do to recruit others to do the asset mining that has to take place to figure out, you know, what resources everybody has to bring to the table. Uh, but the presence of a champion was kind of an underlying theme in a lot of these uh, these pieces.
3: And if I could add on to that, um, then the real effort to develop structures so that these partnerships could continue um, once certain key players maybe were unable to be involved in the partnership. So a real focus on sustaining the partnerships and what sustaining those partnerships would look like going forward.
2: I was going to say that was a trend I had noticed from section to section was the very deliberate intentionality to be authentic in making those partnerships so you could build something like that and in um, valuing valuing, and recognizing that the place itself is a part of the character and recognizing the, the inherent value of that. Absolutely. That's a great point.
1: So, Bob, you mentioned that one of the things that is a key element of that successful partnership is a champion. What are the other components that just need to be a part of that mix in order to be a successful partnership?
4: Everybody has to have some resource they can bring to the table to make this effective. And everybody needs to uh, benefit from this. We have probably all experienced friendships, relationships uh, that were um, asymmetrical. People were uh, giving more than they were taking, taking more than they were giving. And, you know, that creates the kind of sustainability problems uh, that we, that we want to avoid so uh, a focus on, on how this can all be mutually beneficial, I think, is, is another uh, key component. Uh, and people have to be able to give voice to that in really concrete terms. Uh, one of the challenges, I think, for especially the higher education uh, side of, of the partnership is uh, to climb out of your technical vocabulary, climb out of your you know, university structures, and maybe I'm just picking on myself here because those are the structures and that's the vocabulary that I know. Uh, maybe other people have, you know, similar challenges as well, but uh, um, to be able to uh, meet in the middle, I mean, I know it's it's trite, but, uh, you know, it, you got to meet in the middle in so many different ways uh, to make that work.
2: You know, and I recognize, like, I think you're especially talking about that chapter four in the VT peers program. And I mean, they really took the time to analyze how they balance those partnerships in terms of the sort of give and take.
3: And Uh, I found especially in that chapter interesting that they really were willing to examine the tensions that can exist within partnerships and that partnerships um, are by themselves, not without without challenge. Um, I think their word is that partnerships are not a panacea for everything. Right. So. Um, that's a really important point. And we, we do have existing research that challenges exist in rural education partnerships that they're not always, you know, idyllic.
4: And I was really pleased with our authors that they, they did not avoid that. We, they were willing to talk about, um, all of those changing dynamics, the relationships, uh, how, you know, they break down, they, they reform, they, you know, it, it's, uh, our, our authors, you know, lots of kudos go to our authors for their, uh, Honesty about the process, and that was something we we really sought out in, in putting the book together. Was a group of people who were willing to give actionable experience. You know, not leave, uh, not polish it too much, not leave out. You know, the the real ground level making this thing
2: work details. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a perfect opportunity for me to go into the next item, right? If you've listened to us, we ask our teachers, what do you think are the biggest challenges that rural schools face? So I get to ask you that now as a researcher, what specific challenges have you come across and in what ways do you think these partnerships are, are a one way to help tackle those? Great question.
3: Well, our, our book is sectioned into three sections, but really access advocacy and equity are part of every chapter. So I think really that's an important component and I don't know if you want to add on to that or speak to that Bob
4: no only that uh, we, we established those three sections those three themes we knew they were important but we had it was all kinds of difficulty it was days long process trying to figure out which chapter went there because frankly they all kind of spoke to every part of that uh, that structure but um, yeah you know Ty it's a, it's a really good question and uh, I think one of the things that Sarah and I have been careful to do is um, to honor the, the voices of teachers in rural schools and, and, um, parents and, and, you know, folks in rural communities to listen to what they say, uh, is, is important and, uh, to hope that in our work, we've, we've captured some of that. Um, so I, I, I you know, I could speak a little bit to the communities I've worked with, but only, only as an outsider. So, um, it's a hard question for me to answer with any kind of anything less than, you know, humility.
3: One thing I think you will notice, though, is that that first section that's about teachers and teacher candidates has four chapters. And we could have included more in that section because one of the biggest issues facing rural schools is preparing, recruiting, and retaining teachers in rural schools. And it's impacting the shape and the look of teacher preparation across the United States, And we could talk a lot about that, but there are chapters in the book that are specifically attentive to what those concerns are.
4: I get the sense that rural teachers, administrators, staff members, I mean, they need a, I don't know what to call it, maybe a mini hats support group, you know, because uh, nowhere nowhere are you going to find people wearing so many hats uh, as a, a teacher, a bus driver, a uh, you know, I mean, you know, I see you shaking your head. It's uh, uh, absolutely uh, the case that people are doing so, so much. Um, but on the, on the flip side of that, it, it also means that those folks have so much to offer uh, in terms of building uh, solutions that are appropriate to the places in which they live and work um, and, and to the students they work with.
3: So to continue speaking to those challenges, it's not just um, – it is related to bringing teachers in, preparing teachers to teach in rural contexts. But then it's about the children and the families who live in rural communities and how do we get access to opportunities and access to services. So, for example, Chapter 9 is about – partnerships that bring services and resources and supports to children with low sensory disabilities. So it's about it's about things like that. And I think those are examples of the challenges that rural schools are experiencing in supporting all children and all families. Um chapter 8 which I'm a co-author on is about bringing learning opportunities to children in in rural settings. And those are things that I think everyone who is working in a rural context, everyone is grappling with, and everyone is trying to bring those opportunities and to look for ways to partner in order to increase access to those opportunities. I
4: thought you were going to mention Chapter Ten, Sarah, uh, where uh, you know the the example of uh, bringing. Uh, you know, legal advocates and uh, policy experts to to help with issues of access to, you know, from immigrant families, um, non-native speakers of English to uh, be able to, you know, access the kinds of supports that they need within a community. Uh, it's, it's one of my, uh, that's Amy Walker's chapter, La Voz Unida, it's one of my favorites.
3: Yes, absolutely. And that one talks about developing a municipal ID program um, that increased Know Your Rights advocacy and access for people who um, do not have a driver's license. So to be able to attend school events and other things like that, it's an, also a very powerful chapter that speaks to those challenges that you asked us about, Ty.
1: So can we dive a little bit further into that and and just talk a little bit more about what does your research and the stories that you collected and shared um, inform as far as policies and changes in policies that might support rural education more completely, more inclusively, more equitably.
3: That's also a good segue to our most recent collaboration together, which is the why rural matters report centering equity and opportunity. Um, because one of those issues is funding disparities and also pay disparities um, within rural spaces. And um all of those things that influence policy.
4: And funding has been a, you know, um, decade and decade old uh, um, issue. Uh, and the, the, you know, I, my sense is that the attempts to address it by policy at federal and state levels are applying a patch to a patch to a patch, a band-aid um, that we haven't thought seriously about what it takes to uh, educate a child to support a professional teacher, to to, um, address issues of school location and transportation. Uh, And and Sarah's right. Those issues uh, come out and I think are crystallized really well in in the Why Rural Matters report that we did with Karen Epley, Daniel Showalter, and uh, Jerry Johnson. Um, We are also, uh, I think, victim to making a decision or a policy decision and then not revisiting it, not asking, did we do okay? Is this working? Do we need to revise it? Uh, I would point to uh, the the some of some of the I can't speak to all of them, but some of the school consolidation efforts mm. uh, that rose in this you know 60s and 70s, and we're still seeing. And you can look in our report and, and see uh, some of the lingering impacts of those in terms of, uh, say, the expenditures of uh, trans, uh, transportation dollars to instructional dollars. Those are particularly high. There's a high burden on transportation costs in in states that uh, have significant numbers of uh, school consolidations, large schools um, far away from where kids are. and and that's a very, very wonky way of, you know, not even addressing the fact that kids are spending uh, you know a great many minutes and hours on a school bus each day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the policy concerns are, uh, absolutely uh, vital. I think that perhaps Sarah, you you, you want to speak to this as well. But in the the work I've done, uh, simply on a um, in service to the, the the states I've been working in, you know, when when you go to to collaborate with teachers and parent teacher organizations and uh, you know NEA and uh, AFT teacher groups and and so forth, uh, th- those meetings are always in central. Uh, metropolitan spaces—they are, uh, you know, almost always focused uh, on on language that is um, particular to those places, uh, and it makes it very, very hard to make sure that you are including the kinds of voices you need to include. And ultimately, and you know, when you look at even at the root of—I'm a big etymology fan—you know, even the root of the word policy you're talking about. Um, the place, the people, the collection. And so it, it's not acceptable to have you know, one, two voices make the decision because they too often are, are cosmopolitan voices. I was on a performance assessment group in a state at one point, and there was a question about condominiums. And I shook my head. I said, I don't think folks near us are going to really understand that. So I quickly texted a couple of our middle school teachers in, in Southeast Ohio and said, can you just ask your uh, class you're in right now, have them raise their hand if they know what a condominium is, Um, you know, and and they were sending back the most hysterical answers. Uh, You know, I'm not sure what it is, but I think my uncle has one. Uh, I think that's where people in Florida live, Um, you know, and other more colorful answers I won't share with your podcast, but uh, um, you know, I think it it went to say it it was uh, the kind of evidence that the structures we create, uh, sometimes are blind to the spaces that we need to support, and we're talking about uh, almost 10 million rural students in the United States. You know, so this this is not a, a catering to a, a small group. This is a significant group, and I think it drives a lot of the uh, the work that Sarah and I do. And um, you, you know, you you as well. So.
3: Well, and if I can in relation to this policy question, as you said, Bob, so many of these decisions are made without considering the rural context and Mm -hmm. the impact of the rural context. And a lot of our chapters really do speak to that. Um, And a lot of them are developing partnerships to address inequities in policies that manifest themselves in in rural settings. And it, it makes me think about, and please Forgive me, I'm not going to remember her last name right now, but um, previously on your podcast, Alyssa, and I think she um, is a teacher in South Dakota. South Dakota, yes. And she is a music educator, and she talked about, while trying to raise the funds to be able to take music education students to various um, instrumental opportunities They experience a much decreased access to funding just in their local community simply because there are only so many businesses and so many entities who they can ask to help fund them. That is the kind of thing that is not being considered on a state and federal level when we talk about rural education.
4: And my concern is, is the way that that trickles down to students, their perceptions of themselves, the, where they come from, the very title of the book, the middle of somewhere um, strikes at the heart of something that, that dri- you know, uh, uh, the, the opposite phrase that drives Sarah and I nuts that, you know, we, we really want to emphasize the, the value of, of where I come from. Uh, you know, we interviewed uh, in, a, in a study that, uh, that I was part of, we interviewed some math students in a rural place in the Great Plains uh, and we asked them, uh, where is math? And they said, oh, yeah, math is everywhere. I said, well, that's, that's great. Where is it here? And, you know, the student gave us some examples that were some kind of checkbook balance examples. I said, what about, uh, you know, the math you're taking? Well, actually, forget about the math you're taking. What about calculus? And emphatically, this high school kid shook his head, said, oh, no, no, no. You got to go to a big city to find calculus. And it's a, a striking story in some ways, uh, but especially because, this student very acutely saw the opportunities that he had, and it was likely a reflection of what was available to him that came from the funding that was available to fund those opportunities. I mean, so it's a thread that goes deep uh, as far as the impact. So, we, we are both very aware of, of uh, the need to address policy as a, a major issue.
1: Have policymakers been um, receptive to your recommendations and? Do you have any examples of where policy might have changed as a result of what you're putting out into the public space? I think Chapter 10 is a great example of
3: that. Um, in Chapter 10, um, in creation of that um, municipal ID program, uh, the person in charge of that program said, um, unless I you know, receive a groundswell of support for this, I don't think that I can move forward with it. And the example in that chapter is that the partnership made it happen and the partnership brought together that support. And I think that's a really great example of how um, a collective effort can make a difference. Um, in terms of us personally, we're excited to have opportunities like this to talk about the impact of the book and hope that the book you know, will be able to, to impact others. Um, I think the Why Rural Matters report is another really important resource that individuals can use within their own states and their own communities to advocate for the things that are needed um, for their rural schools. And I hope that that report will be used in many different ways to accomplish that.
4: Yeah, and part of part of what's uh, helping in that effort is that the report, uh, given the generous sponsorship of the National Rural Education Association and the Rural Schools Collaborative, uh, we now have something we've never had before with the Why Rural Matters reports. We have a toolkit that includes uh, everything you need to use this report, uh, PowerPoints, uh, um, logos, other resources, data resources, a data dashboard, things that we've never had before that we hope um, allow more people to do more with the information that we've presented. And we really look at that, uh, that report as uh, offering up of uh, a, a view of the data and how they speak to the state of rural education in the United States. And our hope is that uh, others will have the kinds of successes. And we've heard that in the past, you know, but have those successes with what we're presenting in the Why, Rural's, uh, Why Rural Matters report.
2: So, like, these have been some exciting things to share and some new things to think about. But I want to ask you, what do you think the future of rural education looks like and where is that headed? How do we get there?
3: I think the future of rural education is exciting. I think that the conference that we all got to attend together last week was inspiring and it shows how much innovation and effort and engagement in rural education exists right now. I think it's a thrilling time to be involved in rural education and I'm excited about the future and I'm hopeful about the continued advocacy in rural education settings.
4: Yeah, I, I would echo that. I, I think the, the other thing I would add is that, you know, we're, we're seeing rural spaces become more uh, racially, linguistically uh, diverse. Uh, we are seeing, uh, you know, rural, rural spaces, rural communities transformed by technology uh, by, uh, you know, remote work opportunities, uh, people get to choose, uh, where they live based on where they want to live, uh, versus where they have to work in some cases. Um, you know, that, that has a complex, uh, set of impacts on rural communities. It's, you know, neither good nor bad in any, you know, singular way, (laughs) but, uh, um, you know, we're watching those commun- We're watching those communities. We're watching rural places, rural schools, uh, as they respond to this, you know, uh, changing uh, that's taking place. And it's it's. It, I agree with Sarah. It is exciting, um, and you know, nobody has the answers to what it's gonna what it's gonna look like or or how we're gonna make it. Look like that, but I think my answer, Ty, would be that uh, you know you go back to the strong relationships. You make sure those relations, you know, the community relationships, are in place. One of the things that I I thought was absolutely fabulous about the uh, National Rural Education Association conference was uh, I've, I've rarely been to conferences that have people coming from so many different sectors from K-12 schools, from superintendencies, from local education associations, from higher education associations, from nonprofit organizations. It's not just that there's a lot of interest in rural spaces. It's that there's interest from people who have different things to bring to the table. And I think that's a, a real strength that's going to um, bring that bright future about that Sarah talks
2: about. I, I want to narrow that a little bit just because, I, and I, I'm sure that this is my hope, It goes back to, I think, what you were saying about valuing the place, even in subjects like teaching math. What do you think it's going to take to better prepare teachers and to better prepare schools to recognize using that value, that inherent value of place in the way we prepare our kids for whatever comes?
3: That is a multifaceted answer, I think. And I that's want to a talk- million
2: dollar question. yeah, that's. Yeah. great.
3: <laughs> I want to talk just a little bit because, as excited as I am, I do want to offer a, you know, a little bit of warning because we we as rural education advocates are still dealing with a lot of rural stereotypes that exist in really mainstream and popular media. And that is extremely problematic. It's problematic not just in teacher preparation, but it's problematic in recruiting teachers. And it's also problematic for what it tells children about their communities and their schools. And I think that all contributes to what you were talking about, Ty. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, you know, I, in the work I do, I, I experience this tension between wanting to, then uh, I'm speaking specifically about working within indigenous communities, doing math activities bringing mathematicians from all over the United States to work on on problems with kids. Uh, You know, part of the effort there is to help students connect to opportunities, be they post-secondary opportunities or usually post-secondary opportunities. But, you know, what can I do? Where can this take me? But the tension exists between like yeah, I want. I want to open those doors. I want to make sure that those possibilities are there. That you're aware for them, aware of them. But I also want you to value your identity of who you are, where you come from, and what you can offer the communities yeah. that you grew up in or that, that you're coming from. Uh, so there's, and you know, this is well documented in the literature. The the you know the um, the message that gets communicated that opportunities are elsewhere. You have to leave to find you know, go to a big city to find calculus in that example earlier, but recognizing that to support our communities, we, we've got to have that that talent um, retained. We have to have it come back. We have to, you know, keep that talent connected in, in some meaningful ways.
1: Such a good point, especially knowing that um, there's an economic development component to that as well. And so that's a big, big concern for a rural community that's trying to make sure that they're uh, viable.
3: Yeah, actually. and that is something that came through in the book as well. So chapter one and chapter six um both speak to that piece.
1: So what advice would you give to rural educators or rural administrators that are looking to form those partnerships that are so vital in their in their schools? I would encourage them to look for people who are willing
3: to be um, boundary spanners, for people who are willing to collaborate and who want to collaborate, who are, don't want to stay in their silo, who are willing to get engaged at all levels.
4: Yeah, I, I draw on Sarah's earlier example. I'm a big fan of invite somebody out for coffee, uh, do, do a lot of listening, put the phone in your pocket. You know, take a risk. Uh, I think sometimes you know it's, it's easy to talk about getting out of silos, but you know silos are are comfortable. We're surrounded by the known, uh, breaking out and having that coffee and starting the conversation. Uh, Sarah's example earlier of, you know, the ten years that it takes to to create the Ohio Valley Museum of Discovery. You've got to persist. That that takes some staying power. Um, so so you got to invest for the long haul. The other thing we saw in the book is uh, the the importance of of commitment long-term expecting that you're building something not for the now, but for the, you know, the soon to be and the, the time thereafter. And I, I think that's, that's one of the pieces of advice I would give is, um, you know, have those conversations now, be patient with yourself, be patient with others. Uh, sometimes you find solutions in the strangest of places, however broad you can make your call, uh, for collaboration and partnership, make it as broad as possible.
1: So, one of the questions that Ty and I always ask uh, is, what does the term rural advantage mean to you? Because we get a lot of really great answers. So, I'm, I'm curious, Sarah and Bob, what is the rural advantage? To me, the rural advantage is connection,
3: and it is the, the joy that is found in connection, and the reaching out to others, and the bringing people together, and the creating of those networks, um, the creating of learning ecosystems that benefit many people across many different layers of a community. Well said.
4: I think the rural advantage is, is uh, several tens of thousands of years. Uh, we've, we've been doing rural a heck of a lot longer than we've been doing uh, uh, municipal and 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 you know rural has a staying power because rural is necessary, rural is important, rural continues to be a vital part of of who we are um, in the United States and around the world. Um, you know that that history is something to be proud of, um, and I, I that history is a, a necessary history. It's going to be necessary for years to come.
1: That's a good point, Bob. Is there anything that we have not touched on that you want to highlight either about the book or about the Why Rural Matters report? I'd
3: like to just highlight one more time the title of our book, which is The Middle of Somewhere, Rural Education Partnerships and Innovation. And we chose that title because we truly believe that the children who are growing up in rural areas in the United States deserve to believe that their homes, their schools, and their communities are somewhere, despite what others may tell them or despite what the media may show
1: them.
4: I got nothing to add. That's great.
1: (laughs) Mic drop.
2: Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you both for spending some time with us talking about your book and talking about the report. And uh, we look forward to seeing what happens next please uh, feel free to come back and keep us posted on how things are progressing uh, with your research and with your current day jobs as well, with the museum and with your circle work. That's fantastic. So
4: This was fun. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much to both of you. And thank you for all that you do to put
3: the word out there about rural education and the incredible guests that you invite to your podcast.
1: Well, present company definitely included. Very honored. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much for listening to The Rural Scoop. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, or even leave us a comment. And be sure to follow on Twitter, at Dr. Saydorf. That's D-R underscore S-A-D-O-R-F, so that you never miss a new release. You can also check out previous episodes of The Scoop wherever you get your podcasts. Production support for The Rural Scoop is provided by Chattanooga Podcast Studios, Find out more at Studios dot com. See you next time for more great discussions about rural education. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.